I'm going to preach short today, just that honor that. Uh, no, well, we'll see what time we get out of here. Um, I was wondering from Kenny if maybe the adults might be invited to the Nerf gun war, but we'll have to talk about that after service today. Um, we are in a series traveling through Paul's letter to the Colossians, and we are still, uh, today wraps up chapter 1, but we're still in chapter 1, and we'll move a little quicker as we get forward, but there's just so much uh, juice here in the front end of this that we wanted to make sure we got as much out of it as was there. Um, so we're in chapter 1. We'll look at verses 26 through 27 today, also chapter 2, verses 2 through 3. I also wanted to invite you this morning, if you haven't plugged in, perhaps in one of our small group settings. We've got lots of different options. A lot of those are available in your bulletin. But word on the street is that the Sunday school class uh, down the hall in the gym is packing itself out Sunday after Sunday. And so if you're per perhaps interested in doing historical context type of study that goes deep into the Word of God, uh, Terry's your man. Uh, he and Susan are down there uh, leading that group. And so we invite you to come down Sunday mornings at 930. There's stuff for the kids. If you have uh, little ones that need a class, we'd love for you to participate in one of those ways. Um, our text for today comes from Colossians chapter 1, beginning at verse 26. I'm going to ask if you would to stand to your feet for the reading of God's Word. Verses 26, 27, and then chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. Here we go. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Chapter 2, verse 2. That their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge may be seated. All right, well, let's um, dive into this together. You may have noticed there was a word that appears in three of those verses, verse 26, 27, and then again in verse 2, and it's that word mystery. And so that's really what I want to spend our time today talking about. What is this mystery that the Apostle Paul is referring to? And then, of course, what difference does it make to your life and to mine? So let's start with the first of those occurrences where Paul mentions the word mystery in verse 26. He says, the mystery that is hidden for ages and generations. So whatever this mystery is, and Paul's about ready to tell us what it is, it's something that has been concealed. It's something that has been hidden from the minds of men going back for a long, long time. He says, but now uh, this mystery has been revealed to his saints, that is to the church or to believers. And what is this mystery that's been revealed? He tells us in verse 27, he says, um, to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is, he says, here it comes, Christ in you. The phrase Christ in you points to the presence of the indwelling Holy Spirit. Jesus himself does not inhabit us. Rather, it's the Holy Spirit that inhabits us. So Paul uses this phrase uh, well, he tells us over in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 19, he says, Do you not know, because apparently the Corinthians didn't, that your body is a temple? A temple is a place where God dwells. He said, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit dwells within each of us, is what that scripture is telling us. And so Paul uses this phrase, Christ in you, as a way to point toward the indwelling Holy Spirit inside each of us. But not only that, Paul adds that God has chosen to do this amongst the Gentiles, he says. So this is not just something. God has done for the Jewish people, but rather it's something God has also done for the broader world, for the Gentile world, the non-Jewish world. If we skip down to chapter 2 and verse 2, the mystery is defined again, and so this time it's a little different. 
Paul says in verse 2 that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, here it is, which is Christ. Notice that he does not include the phrase Christ in you. He just says, which is Christ. So in verse 2, he has a little bit of something different in mind. The word Christ comes from the Greek word Christos, which is a direct translation from the Hebrew word Messiah. And so the Christos is reporting toward, by using that term, is pointing towards Christ's messianic uh, fulfillment, that he is the Messiah. And so here in verse 2, the mystery is defined a little bit differently. It's pointing to Jesus' Messiahship rather than the indwelling Holy Spirit. Now, I did a little digging, and I hunted down every occasion that the Apostle Paul uses this word mystery in his letters. And um, what I found is that Paul is very liberal in his use of this word. Um, he doesn't always use it to refer to Gentiles having the indwelling Holy Spirit, nor does he use it exclusively or even consistently to refer to Jesus' messianic fulfillment. Rather, he uses this word mystery in relation to a whole smorgasbord of theological concepts. For example... Paul says over in Romans chapter 11 and verse 25, Paul calls the hardened, partial hardening of the Jewish people a mystery. He writes, lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers, which is a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of Gentiles has come in. On another occasion, the mystery has to do with the return of Christ and the transformation that will take place in our physical bodies, namely, that our physical bodies will be resurrected from the dead, that our, the grave will give up our, our bodies, that they'll be reconstituted, and that they're going to fly up to meet the Lord in the sky. And he calls this a mystery. He says, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and verse 51, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Verse 52, In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. So con the concept of this, the knowledge of this, was something that the world did not know about before. It was something that theologians and Jewish scholars did not know before. For example, on another occasion, Paul uses the word mystery to describe the lawlessness that will precede the return of Christ, that will precede Satan being released from his bonds just before the return of Christ. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 7, Paul writes, For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. Verse 8, And then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. My point is this. Paul's use of the word mystery is very utilitarian. And using that word mystery to, to, to convey a certain concept, a certain thought, but not a specific theological one. He does, not even have one. he does not have one consistent theological insight in mind that he's trying to press with the word mystery. Instead, the only thing that is consistent about the word mystery is that Paul uses it to signify something that is hidden from the knowledge of men. It represents special knowledge and the planning that God possesses, that when God is ready, God will then release that information out into the known world, out amongst the theologians out amongst his people. Um, and so what I'd like to do for just a moment is to build a little bit of historical context to help us wrap our minds around why would Paul want to use this word? What's so significant about it? Um, the word mystery comes from the Greek word mysterion. Um, and that word in Paul's day, writing to these Colossians living there in, the, in Asia Minor, in part of the Greek world, the Greek God-worship world, that word would have been pregnant with all sorts of religious meaning, the word mysterion. 
Cult worship in the first century, worship of the Greek gods, was everywhere. It was prolific. I've got some pictures of here for you of several of the many, many, many temples that were all that were littered across the Roman Empire. Um, there were temples everywhere de- dedicated to their many gods. There were statuettes for sale at these temples, and many of those were on display in people's homes. Their festivals and their annual holidays were centered around their worship of these Greek gods, and these are the places where they would go to worship these gods. Like any religion, cult worship was integrated into every part of their first century society. When a person would be inducted into these cults, it was all very hush-hush. You're not supposed to talk about what happened in those initiation ceremonies. You're not supposed to pass that along to people who hadn't been through that yet. And so the word that they used to refer to what happened in those initiation ceremonies was mysterion. That people who went through this, well, it was part of the mysterion that I experienced. And so my point is this. The word mysterion was pregnant with religious overtones. It reflected an insider's religious information. And as such, it was the perfect word. Say that with me. It was the perfect word for the Apostle Paul to use to refer to these events that had just transpired around the life, the death, and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Think about this. Paul writes this letter to the Colossians in the 60s AD. Jesus has just resurrected from the dead and ascended back to the Father not some 30 years before. So this is very recent history when all this has happened. And as such, this mysterion of God, this special knowledge that God possessed, has now been released for the minds of men to know. And this new information has just dawned, 30 years old, has just dawned in human history. And and the Colossian Christians are among the first on which to be cast its light. We must also point out that prior to the last 30 years, this knowledge has been, as Paul says in verse 26, hidden for, the, for ages and generation. That makes this information exciting. It makes this information something that's, that's radical. It makes this information something, again, that the world has never heard before. They're on the front end of hearing this information. Um, God has, that God has been withholding for ages and generations. It is information that apparently God has been planning for. It's information that God has been working toward for a long, long time, for ages and generations. And these Colossian Christians are privileged to be among the early adopters, the frontline recipients of this divine revelation. When Paul employs the word mysterion, it immediately triggers in their mind concepts of being privileged to special information. They are the first fruits of a global movement that not even God's own people, the Jewish people, had put two and two together on. The Colossian Christians exist at a turning point in human history. They are the recipients of the mysterion of God. When we read that word mystery, not a whole lot. When they read that word mystery, it meant a significant amount to them. And so it's no wonder that Paul, writing in verse 27, describes this mysterion using words like riches, and glory. It's no wonder that Paul in verse 29 says, For this I toil, struggling with all the Lord's energy that he powerfully works within me. It's no wonder that Paul in chapter 2 and verse 3 describes this mysterion as treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Because that's what it represented to Paul. And he wants to make sure, impress the idea that elevate this, that this is the gospel of Jesus Christ, to elevate it to its proper place in the hearts and minds of these people. Remember, these are a people under attack. 
Local Jews have been coming in and poking holes in their theology and telling them that Christianity is a farce and that, that, that Christianity is an error, that Jesus is not the Christ, that Jesus is not the Messiah. You mean that you have made as your Savior a man who died a criminal's death on a cross? How could you? And so Paul steps in the midst of their doubt and says, hey, look, let's size up the competition here. Your accusers, these people who are attacking Christianity, these are the very people from whom this information has been hidden for ages and generations. They didn't get it. So why would we want to listen to them? Folks, instead of, what, instead, instead of you being in possession of it, think of your privilege in Christ, he says, to be among the first fruits of this knowledge. Think of the gospel, he says, as I do, as a treasure of wisdom and knowledge. You say, Gordon, I mean, I appreciate all that, but I, I got a question for you. And here's my question. I mean, I, I'm glad for those Colossians. I'm glad that Paul got them all amped up and got them all, you know, energized around that. Hey, look, this is, the, this is good news. This is the gospel message. And he got them seeing it that way. I'm really, I'm happy about that. But there's an obvious point that you're missing. This information was 2,000 years ago. The mystery is gone. I mean, we know Jesus. We know about Jesus. This is not new information that's flying out onto the scene. We know about Christ in you. This is old hat. It's been there for public consumption for quite a while. And so my question is, what difference does any of this make to my life? Right, what does it have to do with me? Right? I'm living here today. What, what, what is Paul trying to communicate to me? What is the Word of God saying to me? Oh, that's a great question. Let's see if we can answer that. First is, to look at how quickly and how easily the Colossian Christians became skeptical of the gospel. Look at how quickly they became and how easily they became skeptical of the gospel. I mean, all these Colossian Christians needed was for some smart aleck Bible scholar to walk into the room, raise a few questions, poke a few holes, and suddenly these folks are needing a letter from the Apostle Paul. Suddenly these folks are becoming wobbly in their faith. Friends, we must recognize how fragile and how vulnerable our faith really is. You know, the temptation to stray from the faith is very real. I mean, who hasn't gone through a downturn in life and questioned, God, are you out there? God, are you listening? God, are you watching this? Who hasn't heard the siren song of, well, everybody else is doing it or everybody else is believing it? That logic is powerful, friends, and it has carried many a deeply committed Christian away from the faith. So that's the first difference that this makes, is to be wary, to be wary of those who want to play skeptic with the Bible. That's what the Colossians Christians were dealing with. Skeptics have been around since the beginning of time. Don't you suppose that Noah had gotten an earful from the people of his day, day after day after day, as he's out there building this ark, year after year after year as he's doing this, his neighbors would come by, and I'm sure he heard all the comments and all the sneers and all the questions and all the objections and laughter. And yet Noah continued to remain faithful to what he knew God had called him to do. Daniel had his fair share of skeptics. Every day he was administering the king's affairs while evildoers plotted his demise. Yet Daniel was unbending. He remained faithful in the face of tremendous pressure to compromise. And yet you would think that when God himself came down to earth and walked amongst us and performed miracles, think about it, thousands of miracles, right in front of the eyes of people whom he was trying to convince that he was God in the flesh, 
you would think that those same people who saw and heard with their own ears that this man speaks as one with authority, not like others that we've heard before. That they would put aside their doubt, that they would set aside their pride, that they would put aside their human logic and their objections, and that they would just believe. No, that's not what they did. After performing one of his many miracles, the Jews asked John chapter 10 and verse 25, if you are the Christ, tell us plainly, just just spit it out, Jesus. And Jesus responds to them saying, I told you, I've already told you, and you didn't believe. He says, the works, referring to his miracles, the miracles that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But still, he says in verse 26, you don't believe because you're not amongst my sheep. Friends, if people who saw and interacted with Jesus live and in person did not believe, then that should be a warning sign to us all how vulnerable and fragile our own faith can be. You say, well, Gordon, if that's the case, then how do I make sure that my faith in Christ is protected? How do I make sure that I stay consistent in my commitment to the Lord? Well, I got a couple of things for you. Number one is church attendance. I know I've mentioned church attendance a handful of times in recent weeks, but hey, here we are again. Regular, regular engagement, friends, with the local body of Christ is essential. When we step away from regular engagement, the lines of morality tend to fade. When we step away from regular engagement with God's people, bad habits begin to creep in. And the garbage that we hear all week doesn't get the counterbalanced voice that it needs. And the skepticism that pops in uh, never doesn't get a rebuttal. Friends, regular church attendance is much needed. It is a way for us to protect ourselves against compromise. So that's one way to protect ourselves. Number two, a second way is regular engagement with the Word of God, with the Bible. I was thinking this week that if a person, perhaps one of us, some of us, uh, was to commit themselves to reading one chapter of the Bible a day, just five days a week, because, you know, things happen and we forget things or we want to sleep in or whatever it might be. But if we held ourselves say, you know, five days a week, I'm going to read one chapter a day. If we were to do that between now and Easter, got a slide for you here, you can see this. Um, between now and Easter, that's 25 total days of reading. If you started in Galatians, you would read all of Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, uh, Colossians, and First, Th- First Thessalonians. If you kept going all the way on out to Mother's Day, okay, in early May, and you read one chapter a day, five days a week, that would take you through Second Thessalonians, First and Second Timothy, Titus, and Philemon. That's ten books of the Bible that you would cover in nine short weeks. Friends, imagine the difference that that would make in your life to saturate your mind to that degree with the Word of God just from a simple discipline of reading a chapter of Scripture a week, a day, five days a week. That's called setting yourself up for success. Um, When Jesus was out in the desert being tempted himself, his reply was Matthew chapter 4 and verse 4. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Friends, we need to realize our vulnerabilities and make sure that we meet them with a strong and readied defense. Number two, the second difference that this makes to your life and to mine, and this is where I'll close today, is to recognize that while this information may have been around for 2,000 years, while this information about who Christ is and that we can have Christ in us, that is, the indwelling Holy Spirit, while that may be old hat in a sense, friends, Jesus has not gone out of style. He hadn't gone out of style. 
You know, the, word, the world may want us to think that Jesus has fallen out of fashion and that he's a relic of the unenlightened mind. But friends, Jesus is still changing lives today just as he did all those years ago. And it's for this reason that Jesus reminds us who we are and what we are when we proclaim him. Jesus said of his followers, Matthew chapter 5 and verse 13, you are the salt of the earth. And again in verse 14, he said, you are the light of the world. It's for this reason that Paul in Romans chapter 10 and verse 15 said, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Um, Friends, Jesus is not out of style. Jesus is just as interesting and just as compelling and just as effectual as he was to the early Christian churches. And so all we need to do to drive that point home to us this morning is to ask ourselves, where would I be if I had never met Jesus? Think about that. Reflect on that. Take that home with you. Drive it down the road. Where would I be if I had never met Jesus? I know for myself I would not know forgiveness. I know for myself, I would not have this church as a, being a part of this church family. I know for myself, I probably would not have my wife. She would have sent me packing long ago. I know that for myself, I would be a rudderless ship trying to navigate this life. I pity people who don't know Jesus. We shouldn't be ashamed to share him. We should pity those who don't know him, who've never encountered a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. We should say to them, you know, look, I've I've got the answer to everything that you've been looking for. And you've been hunting for it in empty calories. And you've been hunting for it with vacations here and there. And that's all the world has to give you. And everywhere you've turned, you always end up empty. You always end up maybe further in debt. You always end up wanting more. But friends, I've got the answer that you've been looking for. Friends, Jesus is the best thing going. He is not out of style. The world gives us rulers like Putin and violence. The world gives us those empty calories and promises of happiness and fulfillment on weekends away. Friends, I would take Jesus any day of the week over any of that stuff. Amen? How about you? Is Jesus out of style in your place of work? Is Jesus out of style in your home? Do we declare him and live for him and proclaim him with the same vigor that we did the day we first met him? And I think that's what Paul is trying to call these Colossian Christians back to. To remind them that he is the mysterion of God. He is what has been hidden for ages and generations and the world has been longing for. And now he has burst forth into human history. And we have him. And he's this precious gift. And we ought to adore him and share him with everyone everywhere we go. Let's pray together. Most gracious God, we thank you so much for the opportunity to crack open your word today, to hear your eternal truth spoken in our ears. So much of the problem, Lord, that we run into when we go out to share about Jesus is perhaps our lack of enthusiasm and our lack of belief and our lack of confidence in what it is we proclaim. Lord, we both repent of that and we ask for renewal. We ask for a re-energizing in our spirit, a deepening love for you that Paul is calling these Colossian Christians to. Lord, may we have that as well. May we see what we possess as riches and glory. May we see it as the treasure of wisdom and knowledge. Lord, as we gather gather around this table now to be reminded of your broken body and of your shed blood. 
We're thankful for this good news. That you have come. You have taken the hit. You have paid the price for our sins. And Lord, by putting our faith and our trust in you for eternity, we can know you in heaven forever. Lord, give us grateful hearts this morning. Set us on fire for you and for this good news. We pray these things in Christ's holy name. Amen.